At Massage Envy, membership means more finish line crossing, more outdoorsing, more soccer mommy, more of whatever you love to do. Total Body Care at Massage Envy helps you feel your best so you can do more of the things that make you, you. Come in today for a $50 introductory rate on a 60-minute massage or facial session. Massage Envy, making the best of everybody. See location for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Graveyard Shift Radio Talk Show on blogtalkradio.com. Shift. My name is Emmy. You're in for one hell of a show tonight. Finally, we're on the air. We've got Colonel Kevin D. Randall, the interview airing tonight. So just hang in there. Hopefully, this will work to our advantage, and we'll we'll be just right back, ladies and gentlemen.
McDougall for the Pop Show Network. Here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptisms offered on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Graveyard Shift. My name is Emmy, and I want to finally we're on. You know, I, um, I would like to first of all uh, apologize publicly to um, Doctor or Kev, Colonel Kevin D. Randall for all this mess that's been going on for two weeks now. We've been trying to air this episode. Week, if those of you who uh, following the show uh, religiously, I know there are many that do. Know that time the show has aired, it it you know, actually goes live and nothing. And you know those of you that listen archived have noticed that too. Well, tonight it's happening, and let me tell you what happened. Basically, we've been having connectivity problems with the Blog Talk Radio servers every time I try to. Connect for something, I don't even know why it happened. Just for some reason, it just wouldn't connect us. And tonight, I, you know, I usually get alerts when my show is about to go on the air. This time, I didn't get alerts, so that meant that the server wasn't connecting right. But finally, I, uh, I contacted Block Talk Radio and spoke with them, and everything's copacetic. We are live, and this is happening tonight. So, there we have it. Now, for those of you that are new to the show, I would like to welcome all of you. We've been having a lot of success recently. It's been awesome. A lot of that success has been uh, translated into all these very prolific and, uh, you know I'm going to say it right, illustrious (laughs) um, guests that we're interviewing, like Colonel Kevin D. Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies and Cover-Ups, which you can get on Amazon.com or Kindle if you have one, and um, it was one hell of an interview, let me tell you. I had a blast chatting with him, and uh, you're going to have a blast So, if you'd like to chat amongst yourselves during the show, or you would like to chat with me, you can do so through different uh, options. You can either call in the show, um, which right now... Um, you can call in the show right now before I air the interview or afterwards we can discuss it. So if you would like to call in, you can call in area code 347-237-5187. That number, once again, is area code 347-237-5187. And if you go to um, slash the graveyard shift one word and then you can find our uh show graveyard shift this should also be listed in and there's uh, a little chat room you can go on right now i think i'm the only one there but that's pretty big. we have a lot of archive listeners um and you can go there chat with me and uh if i think what you have to say is worth air clear it same with the the phone and all i ask of all my listeners, all the guests that come on is just, you know, try to stay on topic. Um, yes, I know, Steve. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. You can say I suck, too, okay? Yes, all right, fine. <laughs> all right, so before we get into it, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to the news. So I don't know if any of you um, remember this story that uh, popped up like back in January of uh, the NASA rover that 
uh, well, you know, obviously taking pictures of Mars. Uh, and it was like taking pictures of this area called Pinnacle Island. And all of a sudden, this rock kind of just appeared, uh, seemingly out of nowhere. And, and of course, of course, there's going to be you know, conspiracy theories about the what the rock was. How did it get there? Well, up, according to official reports, okay, and I stress official reports, NASA has determined the origins of the mysterious Pinnacle Island rock, which – Again, it seemed to suddenly appear in a photo taken by the Mars Opportunity rover this past January. After reviewing the observations of the general area, the space is a large rock with the same unique composition as well as higher tracks from the rover. Okay. So the navigation led them to conclude that, you know, Pinnacle Island was merely a frig- fragment, excuse me, of the larger rock, which had become dislodged. Now, if you want to read more on the story, um, I'm going to link it to uh, the uh, the website or you know the, our Facebook group on Facebook.com. Which, if you want to be on our Facebook um, group, you have to just go to Facebook and look up the talk show. And right now, um, forgive the uh, <laughs> forgive the typey type sound effects. Makes it more real, right? There, I just linked it, and you guys can, um, you know, check it out if you want to learn more. Now, of as far as other strange things going on, yeah, if those that have been paying attention, a strange S-shaped S, as in snake, uh, shaped formation appeared on, uh, like a weather bureau radar image off the West Australian coast, and it was huge. The shape spotted Weather Bureau's map went 30 kilometers west of Rottnest in Australia. After checking the satellite, the Bureau's uh, representative, Neil Bennett, ruled out that the phenomenon was caused by a cloud. Quote, uh, there's no cloud. Oh, wait, should I do the Australian? What? Yeah, I should. Okay. There's no cloud. There's nothing to produce a rain echo, which, we, you know, we do see a lot, but not this particular shape. They don't take on S-shapes and things like that. The radar that we use are there for the detection of precipitation. Uh, it's basically just a beam going out, hitting the rain droplets or ice particles from hail. Sometimes the beam itself, rather than going straight, it gets bent back to earth, and you start to get uh, you start to pick up reflections from the ocean rather than rain droplets. <laughs> now, um, you know, they asked uh, the police. The Department of Defense in that area fear with radar activity, and of course they've yet to comment, which leads me to believe maybe there was something going on. So now, so popular that it's become known as the Rot Nest Monster, or the, excuse me, the Rot Nest Monster. <laughs> um, so now, of course, you know. Everybody thinks it's a sea serpent, and if you want to know what it looks like, just look up Rot R O T T Ness N E S S monster uh, on the on the and it's a shot of the Bureau of Meteorology that shows the uh, the strange S S shape formation. It's it's pretty weird. I gotta admit, I looked at it myself and I thought, what the hell is that thing? So there you go. Anyone ever, has anyone ever wondered, like, why the, you know, what what happened to the woolly mammoths? Because I know I'm always wondering that. I'm always walking around Siberia and, you know, the Arctic and wondering, damn, where the hell are all the woolly mammoths, right? Okay, well, apparently, some scientists at UC Santa Barbara have figured out a hit Earth. Approximately, they did their homework. Approximately 12,900 years ago, a comet that hit Earth may have caused the extinction of woolly mammoths in North America, excuse me, along with other animals such as saber-toothed tigers. So, 
you know, oh, and you might ask yourself, well, how did they find this evidence? Well, they found something called nano diamonds in the sedimentary record, which would correlate with a cometary collision. And you can find more at Epoch Times. And again, I'm going to go ahead and re-link this to our Facebook page, which you can read more if you are interested. So, now I always thought that, you know, the only comet that was worth mentioning back then was the one that killed the dinosaurs. So, damn, if that was a, it's like a second one. What the hell's going on? What's with all these comets, right? You know what I think? I think we should put a border on like uh, around our earth so that these illegal comets don't keep just coming in, right? Because you know what happens if we just let these comets come in, they're going to think that they can just do whatever they want and then they're going to take all of the citizen comet jobs, right? Then you know, they're they're already not speaking our language. They're they're speaking Cometese, which I don't know. I I've never spoken it. I mean, if there's anybody out there that knows how to speak Cometese, I mean, it's, you know, good for you. But I don't know it, so I think I am against illegal comet migration. I said it there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. So has you know. Oh, I I don't know. Should I air this story? You know what? Yeah, I'm going to air it. Okay. Has anybody ever watched, have any of you ever watched like Star Wars or, um, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, and thought, whoa, that was me in a past life. I was, I was Luke Skywalker or I was Indy. Yeah, well. Well, maybe you should join the Uranus Academy of what, Stephen? Oh, I'm, I'm mispronouncing the name. I'm sorry. The Unarius Academy of Science, which, oh, my God. Okay, apparently these people believe, or the members, some members believe that humans have been reincarnated many, many times on this planet. Now, let me let me just stop right there. I do not want to disrespect Buddhism or anyone that any faith that believes in reincarnation that those faiths I respect so th- this idea that these people have I feel is like is like a step on the real reincarnation beliefs I mean the ones that have been around for a long time I'm not saying I believe in reincarnation I'm saying the ones that I believe are real, these people that have been around for a long time. So apparently this group of people, what happens is they're at, when they're watching Star Wars, you know, apparently they're seeing a recording of their past experiences on other worlds. Yeah. And this is according to a documentarian called Bill Perrine. He filmed the, uh, the group for this new documentary called Children of the Stars, and he was quoted as saying, uh, they have created a belief loop where they can see a film like, you know, Gladiator, have a past life flashback, and then ha- and make another film about that experience. So, now this group is no is not a new group. They've been around for a long time, since the 1950s. Um, of this group, they believe that turning their past life experiences into low budget movies helps them overcome overcome the challenges of their previous life. So I, I tell you what, uh, you know what? That's one heck of of a group therapy session, if you ask me. But you know what? <laughs> if it's if that's your the way you're thinking, man, go, f- go ahead. You know, but, uh, yeah, someone should probably tell them that um, that these are actually movies that they're not based on real. Uh, history, you know. But you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's it's real, right? Maybe because it did say, and you know, Star Wars. It says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So maybe I'm wrong. Being out of time, talking too much. Without further ado, I'd like to interview between 
myself and Colonel Kevin D. Randall. And if I have time later, I'll take some calls. Enjoy, guys. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I have with me on the phone Kevin D. Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups, a very popular book. You can buy it on Amazon.com. And I am very excited about this, uh, to, to have him on, on the air. He is a retired lieutenant colonel who served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot and in Iraq as a battalion intelligence officer. And he began writing for UFO magazines, eventually moved into books. And he has a master's degree in psychology and the art of military science and is also the author of Crash, When UFOs Fall from the Sky, Reflections of a UFO Investigator, and UFO Casebook. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing fine. How about you? Well, I'm doing well. I haven't been abducted yet, but, you know, anything can happen between now and tomorrow. So <laughs> you haven't been abducted either, right? You're not... You're not interviewing from a, a, a UFO spaceship or something, right? Actually, I'm on the planet Mars, even as we speak. See, I knew it. I knew there was a secret government program to put retired officers on Mars. I knew it. Well, actually, they, the, the retired part is, a, is part of the, the cover-up, you see. We're not really retired. Ah. Uh, we're just taken to a new level. I see. And is that level Mars? Yes, it is. <laughs> well, that's... The, uh, well, I'll have to remember that. Then. I'm right. Where, I'm right near that new crater that uh, they found on Mars uh, in the last the, uh, couple of days. I see. Ah, now I understand why they. It's a new crater, right? <laughs> do, do they already have theme parks over there? Is Disney World already over there? No, no. Um, it's it's pretty uh, barren, really. Um, the biggest city's only got 47 people in it. So. Oh my God, man! Can I? I, I want to move there. Shoot. <laughs> So, uh, so Kevin, let me let's. I mean, we mentioned a little briefly about you, your background, and um, I want to first of all, uh, all kidding aside, I want to thank you so much for your service to our country, and and um, I mean the fact that you were in Vietnam, and and I mean I, I think it's, I, I always have the utmost respect for anybody that's been in the service. And um, I just wanted to thank you for that. And can you just tell us a little a little bit about yourself and. Well, I think I think first I should say, you know, I'm really hesitant to, to be identified as a Vietnam veteran simply because that ages me so much. Uh, because the Vietnam War was like a long time ago, so now you know I'm an old codger. Uh, but I, I I joined the army in 1967. Went to flight school, and then had a tour in Vietnam. Spent a couple more years in the army. Went uh, when I got out of the army, went to the University of Iowa. All this time I was doing UFO investigations. In fact, my UFO investigation started while I was still in high school. So I actually carried that on through uh, even my, my Army service. Went to the University of Iowa, got a degree there, went into the Air Force uh, for a short period of time, and then was on the Air Force Reserve for quite a while. After 9-11, got into the Iowa National Guard, and within uh, four months of us of me joining the Iowa National Guard, we were deployed first to Fort Riley, Kansas, and then into uh, Baghdad, spent a year in, in Iraq, and came home. Continued my research uh, all during this time using whatever um, was available to me to do it. I uh, spent a lot of time uh, with Don Schmidt at first and then on my own in Roswell, New Mexico, looking into the crash there and uh, looked into various different UFO sightings and cases all, all around the United States. Um, and and like I said, a lot of that comes out in alien mysteries and conspiracies. And I have a new book coming out in May about the government, what's found in the government files, and found some interesting stuff there about uh, when the modern era actually began. Everybody says, well, it began in 1947 with uh, Kenneth Arnold, but it actually started in uh, around 1940-41 with uh, some of the, what is now known as the Foo Fighters. So you know, looking at all of that sort of thing. Uh, and learning as much as I could about UFOs. Well, that's well, that's wonderful. It sounds like you have a very uh, storied career, and and not not just in the armed forces, but also in the UFO uh, genre. Now, uh, just so I make sure that I'm clear about this, you did personally go to the Roswell site and to that area. So I've been you've to Roswell been many many times. Oh, it's, that's like a dream of mine. Then, I want to go there it, so bad. In fact, going to the debris field, it was Bill Brazel who took us there, uh, Bill Brown oh, being the son wow. of the man who actually found yeah. it. 
And then Bill Brazel, of course, had, had been out there himself. So he's the one that took us there. And in kind of a funny story, we meet him in um, in Capitan at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he's going to drive us out there. And we're mm-hmm. on the road in his beat-up old pickup truck, and he looks at Don, and he looks at me and says, You guys want a beer? <laughs> I'm thinking, it's 8 o'clock in the morning for crying out loud. He's a, <laughs> he's opening a beer, and I think, well, one of us ought to drink with him. So I said, sure, I'll have a beer, because warm beer is one of my favorite things at 8 o'clock in the morning. Of course. So he took us out there. He uh, described what he'd seen right there and and um, f- explained where he'd found some, some remnants of the craft, some little tiny bits of debris. So so there was a controversy at one point that uh, Don and I had not gotten to the, the real spot where the thing came down. I said, my God, Bill Brazel took us there. Who, right. who better to take us there? Exactly. I Exactly. I, don't, I can't think of anyone uh, better to, to do that than him. Yeah, so he's sitting handing right there and says, yes, this is the place where I found some of that debris. And I'm thinking, well, we're there. Wow. So You know, it. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, so uh, you know, I've been to Roswell many times, talked to an awful lot of people who lived in the area. Loretta Proctor, for example, lived near the ranch, uh, the Brazel Ranch. Talked to Marion Strickland, who's uh, they also had a ranch right near the Brazel Ranch. Talked to the family of the sheriff. Talked to many of the military people who were involved in the thing. I may be the only person who ever actually talked to Edwin Easley, who was a provost marshal. Uh, at the base at the time. So uh, we talked to reporters who worked on the newspapers and the radio stations there. So we talked to an awful lot of people who were involved in the case um, when we began our investigation back in 1989. Wow. And, I mean, I know that, you know, um, uh, William Brazel, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this story, um, I'll I'll say I'll do it really briefly just because we are going to be referencing it quite a bit. And uh, I know there's a, most of the audience already knows the story, but just very briefly, I'll go into it. And and you know, Kevin, if you notice any uh, any incorrect information that I'm that I'm saying, please do correct me. Uh, but basically, it's during the first week of July, 1947, William Brazel, a foreman of um, for a ranch in, in Roswell, New Mexico, was examining livestock when he noticed a wreckage of an unknown shiny metallic material. Brazel collected a sample of the debris and showed it to George Wilcox of the Chavez County, New Mexico Sheriff's Office. Um, and Wilcox brought down Major Jesse Marcel from the Roswell Army Airfield, RAAF, to examine the debris. And after the discussion, uh, they uh, traveled to the debris field. And just so you know, it covered like an area about uh, – obviously, I'm reading this from, from you know, uh, from something written down uh, – about, you know – uh, just under like 0.75 miles. That's, at least that's what that's what it says on here. Long and it was about several hundred feet wide. Is, is that about right, uh, about three, Kevin? Three Would quarters you... of a mile long, yeah. a long, couple of hundred feet wide. There was a gouge down through the middle, middle according to Bill Brazel, uh, tapered at both ends and kind of uh, uh, a bigger area toward the middle of it, as if it had kind of skipped in and, and bounced out of the area. Okay, and 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 now. Uh, Marcel informed the U.S. Air Force of the flying saucer, and it's very important to to note this uh, that the na- the word flying saucer is being used, and it was handled by the Eighth Air Force. Now, on July eighth, this is the most important part, guys. The Roswell Daily Record, which was like kind of a a local paper, reported that the RAAF found a flying saucer in that region, and a press release from the FBI was released the same day, claiming. Get this, a weather balloon was found instead of a flying saucer. Now, it goes off from there. Now, um, I think it's very – I mean the fact that there was such a, an impression on the ground, the fact of the, 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 the massive space of the debris field, I think we can pretty much just set to stone right here, set to rest, that it was not any weather balloon that fell in that area, correct? Well, the, the, the explanation that the Air Force – the Army Air Force has provided then was it's a weather balloon – what the Air Force, the explanation the Air Force provided in 1995 was it was a, from a special project known as Mogul. Right, the right. Only, the only balloon flight that they could plug into that area was Mogul Flight Number 4, and the documentation says the flight had been canceled, so no balloon actually flew. So there really now, isn't anything to leave, leave debris. So we, what we've been able to do, and I say we, and it's just a whole range of different people working on it from various angles, 
have mm-hmm. eliminated all the terrestrial explanations, which doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's, it's alien, but there is no explanation for it. It's not a crashed airplane. It's not a rocket from White Sands. It's not this Project Mogul balloon nonsense. There, there is nothing to explain this extraordinary debris that was found by first Mac Brazel and, and then some of the pieces picked up by his son Bill Brazel. Okay, so uh, that's good. I mean, so it sounds like you you actually you've done your homework and you 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 all did several uh uh time, parts uh, excuse me. You tried several times doing different kinds of research and you came to the conclusion that there was really no kind of explanation we, terrestrial explanation for it. Exactly. We for example, we went to the White Sands Missile Range and we talked to the people there. I have a listing of all the missile and rocket firings from White Sands from 1945 or 1946 through the 1950s. They're all accounted for. Nothing mm. nothing to leave debris on the Brazil Ranch. The Air Force themselves said it was not an airplane crash. They looked at all their records. It wasn't an experimental aircraft. It wasn't uh, a military aircraft. It wasn't one of the airplanes assigned to the 509th, and the reason I would make that distinction is because in 1947, the 509th Bomb Group, which was a group at Roswell, was the only atomic strike force in the world at the time. So they had special equipment that went on their airplanes uh, to carry the atomic weapons. Right. And and so there was nothing there was nothing like that that fell. So we look at everything. The only thing you're left with is this, this nonsensical mogul balloon explanation. Yeah, and I mean I think that had a lot to do with just the fact that it was they needed an explanation quickly and um that was probably the most uh, plausible explanation they could come up with on the spur of the moment. The, I mean, the weather balloon you know, explanation. They came up with a with a mogul explana- explanation decades later, and trying mm-hmm. to say, well, see, mogul was so highly classified, the the people working on it didn't even know the name. Well, we we've proven that's not true. The diary kept by one of the lead the lead scientists mentions mogul all the time by name, and his diary says uh, the flight that they pinned this on number four was canceled. So. Uh, we know mm. we know exactly we know we know everything that went on in that respect about Project Mogul, and they were using off-the-shelf weather balloons. They were using off-the-shelf equipment, so there was nothing special about the the, the the purpose of Mogul was classified, but the experiments going on in New Mexico and the equipment being used was not classified. Right, and you know I I have an interesting question for you. I don't know if you all uh, looked into this or not. You probably did, but you know a lot of people. Some people know and some people don't know, but around this period of time, uh, there were uh, a great deal of test pilots testing very experimental test planes. I mean, Chuck Yeager, for example, broke the sound barrier uh, October 14, 1947, which, I mean, was uh, later, obviously, than when this happened. But uh, I think it's, you know, just to play devil's advocate here, uh, which it's very hard for me because I'm, for one, believing it. To be what they said, what you know, you said, and it is. But let's just say, what are the odds that it could have been one of these test planes, possibly that maybe crashed? I mean, I honestly don't know how far it was from when, from where these test pilots flew. I don't. I actually do not know where Edwards Air Force Base is. Edwards Air Force um, Base is in California. Oh well, well actually, okay. I mean, is it is it hard to believe that? I mean, because I, I don't know how far these planes can go. There are so there asking. are two chances that it was an experimental aircraft, zero and none. Oh, okay and, then. <laughs> and, and the reason I can say that is because when the Air Force was investigating this in the 1990s, mm-hmm. any aircraft that they were testing in 1947, no matter how we, how how advanced it may have been, is certainly. Uh, and and an antique by today's standards, mm-hmm. and so we can look at we can look at all that and said but there's no documentation for it. The Air Force themselves looked at this and said we have right. found absolutely nothing to suggest it was any aircraft accident. So the Air Force is is saying it wasn't an experimental aircraft. It wasn't one right. of our airplanes. There's absolutely nothing in that realm to explain it. And then we look at at the the things being launched out of out of uh, White Sands, which is around 100, 110 miles from Roswell. So you've got a lot of rockets going up, a lot of missiles going up. And and I, and I know the difference between rockets and missiles, and that's why I keep dividing them that way. Right, exactly. And I'm glad, and I thank you for doing that, because a lot of people do not know the, the difference. But but, and, the, and, but the point simply is, all of all of the um, all of the, the missile launches, all of the rocket launches, are 
accounted for in the in the mm-hmm. record. They're not necessarily listed in order because if a, if a what they call the shot was canceled or postponed, say number five was postponed, they may have made that experiment months later. So you you go to 22, 23, five, and then to 24. So all of them are accounted for in the record. So there's nothing to leave debris scattered on the Brazil ranch that came out of New Mexico. So any kind of experimentation going on has been accounted for not only by the White Sands Missile Range but by the Air Force. That's amazing. That's the, I mean that's amazing that there's been that kind of level of of detail and, and research done to uh, about this crash and we tried I mean, to, we tried to we tried to explain it. Yeah, Don, that's, I mean that Don and I went to New Mexico the first time. We were convinced that there was a, a plausible terrestrial explanation for this thing. And it was only after, and in fact, the first couple of days we were there, nothing was working out. We couldn't get to the right people. We were going to meet with Frank Joyce, the radio announcer from Roswell at the time, and he, he backed out of the first interview with us because he was ill, and everything seemed, seemed to be blowing up on us until we got to Bill, to Bill Brazel. And Brazel sat with us in the uh, Outpost Cafe or Outpost Bar in uh, Carrizoso. And uh, once we finished with that, we said, you know, there is not going to be a terrestrial explanation for this. I mean, the guy was that credible when we talked to him. And But we looked for it. We went to White Sands. We tried to find a missile or a rocket that would, would account for it. We went to the various experimental aircraft. We looked for that. I visited with Charles Moore, who was a scientist with the Project Mogul team or the New York University team at the time mm-hmm. in 1947 and chatted with him about all of this. The Air Force, and one of the things they did do, uh, Colonel Richard Weaver, who was the leader of the Air Force investigation in the mid-1990s, he said that one of the things they did was they went, they found um, Crary's widow and got from her Crary's field notes and then mm. transcribed all of those and put them in the big, thick book that they put together. And, and Weaver's hope was that, that all of us would look, look at that and, and go through it and, and find things in it. So when I say, you know, Dr. Crary talked about Project Mogul using the name Mogul, and hmm. the, big, the big thing was, well, Mogul was so secret they didn't even know the name of it. We could disprove that because there's at least four instances in that diary where he uses the term Mogul. The Mogul equipment has arrived, uh, that sort of thing. So we looked at everything we possibly could. I spent time in Alamogordo going through the Space Museum there and their records in the basement looking for any sort of, of experimentation that would account for the debris. Wow. Uh, I, 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 and I say I, but, but I know Stan Friedman um, has been to any number of archives looking for information. Don Schmidt's done the same thing. Tom Carey has done the same yeah. thing. We've all looked for explanations in trying to follow up on what we know and, and document as best we can. Uh, Don and I even visited the FBI office in Dallas in uh, what, 1994, I think it was, trying to see what we could learn from their records. They didn't have anything that went back that far, unfortunately. But, mm-hmm. I mean, we at least made the effort to go and talk to the FBI in Dallas about it. Well, and, of course, you know, Don Schmidt uh, and Tom Carey published their book, you know, Witness to Roswell, back in, uh, I believe it was 2007. Uh, so that, that there's that, too. Now, let me ask you this. What are your, uh, what are your thoughts on the Majestic 12 documents? This is, How do you this is where I diverge from quite a few uh, UFO researchers, and I think they're a hoax. And I think really? There's absolutely no evidence that they're authentic documents. That's interesting. The, okay. the, the original documents, um, you can trace to Bill Moore no further. And I know that in, in, in question documents, they, they always say, well, there's some mechanism to keep you from seeing the original documents. What we have is photographs of the, orig- of the documents. We don't have the original the signature is clearly from another document uh, that Harry Truman had signed. It doesn't fit the formats of the time, and it doesn't present us with anything that we didn't really know. In fact, there is a fatal flaw in it, as I see it. Back in 1940, back in back in the 1970s, 1980s, when when the documents first appeared, there was a Air Force allegedly an Air Force officer who talked about a crash near Del Rio, Texas, in. Um, the 1950s, a guy named Robert Willingham. Right, right. And he was he was working with a UFO researcher, and I use the term UFO researcher very loosely here when I refer to Todd Zeckel. And Zeckel was chasing down this Del Rio crash with Willingham. 
Zeckel and Moore were in communication. So if you go and you look at the Roswell Incident book, there's one paragraph that refers to this thing in the Del Rio, uh, El Indio Guerrero area in, uh, in, the, in the 1950s. And then you look at the MJ-12 document, and there's a single paragraph in that document that refers to that case. That case you, is a hoax. So you think? I mean, you think that maybe the Majestic 12 documents were uh, concocted as a way to kind of distract from the actual story? No, I think the, no, I think okay. the, actually the MJ-12 documents were concocted to propel specific people into the spotlight. Okay, that well, was, that's that, interesting. That was the reason they were corrected. I, I Stan. Um, did not have any part in that, of course. Uh, Stan being the the number one champion now of, of right, right. twelve documents. Right. This uh, this is a Stan is a Stan T. Friedman. Yes. For those of you who are not familiar with the name, but um, but it's but it's clear that there is there are problems with the documents that go from the dating format uh, through the misspellings of of what was going on to this one paragraph. That refers to this El Indio Guerrero UFO crash in 19, 1950, and that's mm-hmm. a hoax. And you would think if you're the Majestic 12 and you know all about this stuff, you'd know that was a hoax. Right. You wouldn't okay. be putting this hoax into a document to, to brief President Eisenhower, who, by the way, was the uh, chief of staff of the Army in 1947, so he should have already known about the Roswell case because the stuff would have gone up the chain of command. And in 1947, the Army was broken down into the ground forces and the air forces. And so you had a chief of staff of the ground forces, a chief of staff of the air forces, and then you had uh, Eisenhower, who was the number one guy in the Army at the time. So it would have gone up the chain of command, and he would have known. And that document, the, the Majestic 12 briefing that was prepared for him was unnecessary. This is unbelievable. I, mean, you, I have to tell you, Kevin, that of all the people that I've ever interviewed on this subject – you are hands down one of the most um detailed and you have the most i mean the information that you have is just unbelievably uh accurate and uh backed up i mean you, you just there's no there's no loopholes with you and that's really that's really uh what, impressive what we have to do is if we're going to do our research into ufos and we're going to convince mm-hmm. the news media the scientific community the skeptics that there is something going on and it warrants investigation, we have to have all the facts, and we have to have facts that can be verified and checked. And the problem we run into too frequently in the UFO field is that uh, people people embrace an awful lot of things that they want to believe as opposed to what should be believed. And I always try to operate on uh, um, what do we think, what do we know, and what can we prove. And we can prove very little of it. We know quite a bit, and we, you know, we, we, we theorize about an awful lot of it. But when we get down to what can we prove, well, we can prove something fell at Roswell because there's no disputing that. We've got newspaper articles. We've got FBI documents. Something fell at Roswell. Definitely, yeah. When we, get in, when we begin to theorize, or what do we think, and we move to the extraterrestrial, it's based on the testimony of the people we've interviewed, uh, whether it's Jesse Marcel Sr., Jesse Marcel Jr., Edwin Easley, every member of Colonel Blanchard's staff, Colonel Blanchard being the commander of the 509th Bomb Group at that time, every member of his staff that we were able to interview said it was extraterrestrial, with a single exception, and that was a guy named Barrowclaw, who was, I forget whether he was the executive officer or the deputy commander, but he was the second guy, uh, second or third guy in the chain of command at at Roswell. He said, no, it never happened. But everybody else, Patrick Saunders, who was the base adjutant, uh, on the flyleaf to one of the books that Don and I had written, uh, there was a flyleaf that ta- it, it said damage control and explains how they had hidden this stuff. And Saunders mm. wrote to, um, on the flyleaf of the book, um, this is the truth and I never told anybody anything and signed his name to it. Well, there's a bit of documentation. Granted, it came about in 1990, but here's a guy who was there, should have known there's no reason for him to do that unless, of course, it's the truth. Right. And uh, I mean, exactly. And and what about what do you think? Of, I mean, I know I'm going a tiny, tiny bit off tangent here, but not really. I'll, I'll explain. If we fast forward a little bit in time, not too far, to the Philadelphia experiment and the Carlos Allende letters, do you think that those have any um, 
you connection. Un- you understand that Carlos Allende, Carlos Allende, who his real real name was Carl Carl M. Allen, uh-huh. admitted it was a hoax. Okay, I do. I've heard this story, but I've also but then there were people saying no, that it was not a hoax. That he came out saying that because he was afraid, blah blah blah, and he said that because there was a cover up. So now there's ba- a lot of back and forth. So, but uh, okay, so do you? You're saying you think it was a hoax, the whole Allende letters have, thing? Is there any documentation beyond Carlos Allende that this thing took place? Honestly, no, I don't. I don't think there is. No. There you go. And, and in fact, Bill Moore did a book about it called The Philadelphia Experiment. Right. And, and you know, Allende had said supposedly that it was all written down in a newspaper for anybody to see. And he just had to find the right newspaper. And in his book, The Philadelphia Experiment, they've got a, 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 a sort of a photostat of this newspaper column that allegedly appeared in some newspaper, but they don't identify the newspaper. They don't identify um, the date of, of the newspaper. And there's not a single name in that newspaper story. Have you mm. ever read a newspaper story where there's not a single name? No, it's I honestly know. It's all very cleverly done. It says, in a disturbance down at the docks, what docks? The waitress said, "What's her name?" Um, mm. so there, there's not a single. There's not a single. And I cannot believe that an editor would allow something like that to be appear in the newspaper without a verifying it and not having some names attached to it. But mm. there's, there's absolutely no evidence that the Philadelphia experiment took place. It's an invention of Carlos Allende, and in fact, it goes back to the uh, book. Um, the case for the UFO by Morris K. Jessup, where these three guys okay. supposedly passed a book right. around, and they're talking about the disappearance of the Stardust, which was an airliner that disappeared in the 1940s, flying flying from Argentina to Chile, and they said it disappeared within sight of the airport. And this was a great mystery. Nobody knew what happened to the airplane, and they're talking about what happened to it in the book as if they know it, know from outside sources. The problem is the wreckage of the airplane was found about 10 years ago. Mm. They flew into a mountain, and and what had happened was they crashed at the high altitude. They had believed they were 50 miles from the airport when the crash took place. They were way off course. They badly miscalculated the uh, where they were, and they began letting down where they thought the airport was, and they flew into a mountain. And this mm. wreckage finally it was covered by snow, and the glacier was moving, and finally the wreckage reappeared uh, down the mountain a ways. It's identified by serial numbers from uh, parts of the engine that were found. Some of the people who were killed in that crash, their uh, uh, bodies were identified through DNA. So you've mm-hmm. got this great thing, and it looks like a real mystery, and uh, but it turns out it turns out that it was a, a, a horrible aircraft accident. Wow, that's amazing. Now I will say that there is some uh, mystery. Some, I mean, well, depending on how you look at it, uh, involving uh, I think it was Jessup's death or apparent suicide. Uh, it was isn't it wasn't he the one that that uh, if I believe it was him that was found in his car yes. something that he died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, the other, and the, the other thing you have to remember is two of the people involved in this were a guy named Hoover and a guy named Sidney Sherby who was with the Office of Naval research at the time in the, in the right yeah uh, yes exactly i interviewed sydney sherby i went to his office i'm sorry i just dropped my coffee you interviewed who sydney sherby the guy one of the guys involved in this oh my god and uh well what happened was i'm living in 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 uh mineral texas uh at, you know that was where i went after vietnam i was assigned to the post uh walters uh, fort walters texas and uh, Brad Steiger, who is a very good friend, by the way, and lives here in Iowa. With me. Same here. I know Brad. Yeah, I'm Brad's a good, a good guy. And Brad yeah, yeah. Steiger did a book about the Allende letters. Yeah. And in that book, it talked about this guy who'd written to the chief of uh, naval operations and got a copy of the the book, the annotated book that that was sent. You know, the viral manufacturing had uh, uh, done done. Uh, 25 or 50 copies of the uh, annotated book. And uh, so I wrote to the chief of naval operations, and I got a response because they knew exactly what I was talking about and said, uh, you know, uh, that was done by Vero Manufacturing in Garland, Texas. And I look in the phone book, and Vero Manufacturing in Garland, Texas isn't that far from where I'm living at the time. Mm-hmm. So I called down there and got a receptionist and said, oh, you want to talk to Sidney Sherby? So they knew what I was talking about, and I chatted with him on the phone. He said, well, if you come on down, I'll... Uh, 
uh, visit with me and uh, we'll we'll see what we can do. And so I got down there. He showed me the the annotated copy of the annotated book that he had. He said, "This is the last one I've got. If you've got a way of copying it, I'll loan it to you," which he did. So I made a I made a Xerox copy of the darn thing and uh, chatted with him about what was going on. And it turns out a lot of the mythology that's grown up around the the um, uh, Allende letters is untrue. When the, mm. when the Office of Naval Research got the book, their attitude was, we don't care, this is crap, and they were going to throw it away. But two guys, Hoover and Sherby, were interested enough in it, and they said they wanted to investigate it. And they said, yeah, don't use any of our resources, don't use any of our money, do it on your own time, but go mm-hmm. ahead, have, have at it. So the Navy wasn't interested in the book, as the legend said. So I had an annotated copy, which I thought was really great, and it turns out practically everybody in the free world got a copy. And um, I now I, I, I have a um, CD that I sometimes take to lectures to, to sell. It's got a bunch of my books on it in uh, uh, PDF format and all of this. And it's got a pop copy of the uh, annotated Allende Yellers book as it was produced by Varro, Varro Manufacturing back in the 1940s. So I went down and I chatted with Sherby and, and got the story from him. That's amazing. And, you know, and there are several um, – uh, stories and, and annotations and uh, about the fact that you know that this thing never occurred. I mean, you know, you have historian Mike Dash that noted, you know, that many many of the authors that publicized the the the, the story uh, after that of Jessup, uh, they you know didn't really have any research of their own. And uh, then, you, of course, you know the timeline inconsistencies or that the Elbridge was not commissioned until August 27, 1943. It remained in port in New York City until September 1943. And, you know, of course, the October experiment allegedly took place while the ship was on its first shakedown cruise in the Bahamas. Well, you see, but there so. were two ships by the same name because the, ah, okay, the, Navy, the Navy always names, gives the same name to ship, same, ships in the service at the same time to, to prevent any confusion. Ah, so there you go. So, I mean, you know. But, but, I, but, but, that, but that, that's the thing is – uh, too often in UFO research or people who write books about UFOs uh, don't bother to check on these things. Right. And so I, I've started doing that, and I, I catch a lot of hell for that. But I know one of the things I was doing is I was working on the government files book. I was invited to the citizens' hearings in uh, Washington, D.C. about UFOs. And a number of the people I wanted to talk to were actually also guests there. So I, I took the chance. So that uh, I got to talk to um, um, John Callahan, who was the FAA guy involved with the the JAL, the Japanese airliner incident in 1986, for example. I got to talk to him. So rather than read a bunch of other books and then write my versions of it, I try to go to the people and ask them specifically, um, have they been has has their information been misrepresented? Is there something wrong with what's being published out there to verify this stuff. In fact, that's how I met Brad Steiger. I was working on a book, and I'd come across this tale of this kid who disappeared in in, in um, Wales in 1909, and it had been one of Brad's books. And I said, I know Brad. Well, I, I didn't know Brad, but I said, I know how to find Brad because I knew the I knew the the way to find Brad Steiger. I happened to know that, so I called him on the phone, mm-hmm. out of the blue, just called him on the phone and chatted with him. And he said, oh, that story's a hoax. I found out you know, later that it was a hoax. So don't use that story. And, and so in my research, you know, I was able to eliminate that story from the annals of great, great uh, disappearances because I, I tracked down Brad Steiger to ask him some questions about it, and Brad said he'd since learned the truth about it, and it was a hoax. And so I, you know, I tried to do that rather than somebody says something, so and so said this. I try to find that guy, right. or those, that witness or that person, and ask them if they've been misquoted, if there's a mistake in what they have said, mm-hmm. uh, or somebody has misunderstood what they said. Let's let's straighten these things out. So I've done that in quite a few cases, and I go back and look at some of my notes, and I'm astonished at the people I've talked to. Uh, 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 Delbert C. Newhouse, who took the pictures at Trendement, Utah, of the UFOs that went to the Air Force in 1952. I talked to the guy in 1976 to ask him specifically, um, and, and it doesn't mean whether whether what he saw was a alien spacecraft or not, but the stuff that's being re- that had been reported that he had said prior to that time, I learned exactly what uh, 
was true and what may have been uh, inaccurate in that. Right. I mean, it's obvious, I think, you know, that you do your homework and that you really follow up on that, even on the homework that you do. And so there's no question that the information that you publish is accurate, or at the very least as accurate as it can be. At the, at and, the time. Um, I, I mean, I've, I spent some time about the, the William Rhodes photographs and weren't real impressed mm-hmm. with them. And I got a phone call one day from some guy who knew Rhodes. And, and so we went back and looked at these pictures that had been taken in 1947 near Phoenix, Arizona, and asked him specifically uh, – he gave me some information. I found out a lot about Rhodes that the Air Force file had misrepresented about him. You know, he said, well, the guy was a, a part-time musician who was living off the earnings of his wife, and so you don't have to pay much attention to him because this guy's kind of a sleazeball. Turns mm-hmm. out Rhodes had any number of patents and was getting royalties from them. They were living off the royalties of his patents. The guy was a genius. Wow. And uh, the Air Force tried to tried to marginalize him by saying, well, the neighbor said he was okay, but he but he kills cats and dogs and comes on his, on his property. I'm thinking, if my neighbor kills cats and dogs that came on the property, the last thing I'd say is a good neighbor. And so <laughs> so the I mean, so the Air Force kind of tried to marginalize him, but but I was able to learn some more about him. And one one of the funny things was um, there was a, a a scientist who was involved with Rhodes, and Rhodes was explaining how he had gotten his Ph.D. and he mentioned this guy. But he said, but the guy's dead. Well, I was looking the guy up to see who it was and found an email address for him. At, uh, uh, and so I just saw the lark sent an email and got a response from him. He says, you know, rumors of my death are premature. Huh. And so here was a guy who knew Rhodes and could talk to me about Rhodes uh, about it. So I learned, I learned some additional stuff about Rhodes. And I put that – I put a lot of that in, the, in a book I did called Reflections of a UFO Investigator, which kind of – Kind of covers my career from being a teenager interested in UFOs to um, uh, whenever I finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well that that's just I mean that's amazing and it, I mean uh, unfortunately we're we're out of time here. I wish we could uh, do more and we're, we're going to have to do another interview. I mean this is just I I really want to pick that immense brain of yours <laughs> a little more. <laughs> Not like the aliens would do, mind you. Just this would be gentle. And... You mean the what is it? Multiple, multiple indexed. Oh, I can't remember the term from Earth versus the flying saucer. Um, it was some kind of a indexed memory that they had, and I can't remember the term, which was kind of funny. Infinitely oh, indexed memory, I think, is what it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much for your time, and and uh, I mean, it's it was it was a blast interviewing you, Kevin. I, I just uh, very very frequently, you know, um, I, I meet people who say they have information about this kind of stuff, but infrequently I meet people who have actual uh, historical and uh, accurate knowledge of it and such storied knowledge of it as, as you do, and uh, that, that that's a rare thing. And um, well, I, I could, That's what happens when you become old and crotchety. You have a <laughs> lot of information. <laughs> well, hopefully I can be that crotchety. I, I'm already – I mean, well, I'm not that old. I'm 40. I mean, but, you know. You're a whippersnapper compared to me. I'm a whipper. Oh, see, there you go. See? <laughs> but um, I want to thank you so much for your time tonight. And, Not a problem. Um, and uh, just so to make sure, I want to uh, make sure that people know so this book uh, is Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. It's by Kevin D. Randall. You can buy it on Amazon.com. I've actually seen this book at bookstores, so I believe if you go to some bookstore, you might be able to find them. I mean, well, the ones that are still around. Well, uh, if, if you've got a Kindle reader and you want to read it in the next 30 seconds… Oh, they're perfect. There you have it. So then you can you get can it on do, Kindle. You can do that. You know. If, yeah. In fact, I no, I didn't download this one. They wanted too much money for it. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've got some other books on Kindle that I actually download copies to see what they look like. But <laughs> well, if you so if you want to go ahead and get this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can get it on Amazon.com, or if you have a Kindle uh, reader, you can get it on Kindle. Again, it's called Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-ups. Kevin, once again, I want to thank you for your time, and hopefully we'll we'll have you on back again soon. You know my email address. Give me a shout. Ladies and gentlemen, that was uh, the interview between myself and Kevin D. Randall. We are out of time, guys. I'm sorry, but I cannot take any phone calls right now. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the interview, and stay tuned on the Facebook site.
and on www.blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift for our next interview. Um, we should have information on that soon. This is Emmy, and you've been listening to the grave a yard a shift. Catch you next time, guys. Later. number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's you, Jamie. Don't be alarmed, but I think there's a guy following you. Maybe we should get that guard dog we talked about? Nothing too scary. Maybe like a Bichon with an attitude? You know, Progressive's collision insurance covers injured dogs and cats at no extra cost, so... Wait. The guy stood up when I stood up. He's on the phone. He's looking right at me. Oh. Wait. It's just my reflection. Don't tell anyone about this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet coverage not available in New Hampshire and North Carolina.